Now, while you're taking your seats, I want to remind you, you know, a little bit of the reasoning behind why we had Josh McDowell out on Thursday was to set us in that mindset that the authority of Scripture is established, it's reliable, and the Bibles that we currently possess in English are a very accurate representation of the original text, the original manuscript evidence, and you can trust what it says. And the reason I bring that point to you tonight is we're entering in to one of the hotly debated and hotly contested parts of the book of Genesis. And tonight we're going to be looking at these very strange creatures called the Nephilim, the fallen ones. And as you turn to the sixth chapter, the reason that I want to bring that to your attention is this. You have a couple of options as a believer. One is you can believe that the Word of God is accurate, authoritative, it says what it means, means what it says, and God is not a deceiver, He's not a liar, and so when He says something, you can trust what He says implicitly, even when you do not understand the mechanism by which that happens or can occur, or perhaps it contains the miraculous, and thereby you're forced to literally believe that God does miracles and can do things that you cannot explain. The other path is you try and find a naturalistic explanation for the supernatural. You begin to question God, and you take everything he says as somewhat figurative, It's not meant to be taken literally, and thereby, when you read things like we will look at tonight, you try and find some reason to believe that this is possibly just an extrapolation of some basic understanding at the time. And it can be explained solely by natural means. And thereby, this either is a fairy tale or it is the truth. And I can tell you which side I'm on. I believe God authoritatively spoke what he meant, meant what he said, and what we today uh, have in our hands available to us is, in fact, the infallible word of God. There are very few things that you can go back through and look at the manuscript evidence, especially for the first five books of the Bible, and find any area of disagreement with the current English text in a whole bunch of different versions. And so whether you have the King James tonight, whether you have the New King James tonight, the New Living Translation, the New American Standard, the Revised Standard, the English Standard Version, uh, even the NIV is relatively accurate uh, here when you look at this particular passage of Scripture. And so would you join me? We'll look at the first four verses Uh, and these giants that were in the land. Father, we thank you for the power of your word. And Lord, as we study tonight, would you help us to be encouraged to know the times and the seasons in which we live because these times are important to us as are described in Genesis chapter 6. Because you, Jesus, quoted of these times. Peter 
quoted of these times and Jude quoted of these times. Even the book of Hebrews alludes to these angelic beings. And so, Lord, we pray that you would instruct us from heaven. As we read, we want to hear and know what it is that your spirit would say to us. So bless us with understanding, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, Genesis chapter 6. And now it came to pass that when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. I want to make a little disclaimer here. I'm looking around to see. I don't think we have any issues tonight. Uh, tonight's message will be PG-13. So uh, we, we need to discuss a couple of things. And there will be some adult topics in a couple of places. And so it begins with a couple of strange understandings. Daughters of men, not too tough, but sons of God. Who are those? And again, we must look at the original language to determine what those sons of God actually might be. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. And I want to ask you to underline that particular phrase. And here's why. God absolutely, without equivocation, is not going to strive with mankind's evil forever today. His character has not changed. He remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if there was an extent to which he would allow mankind to go in its desire for evil and for sin, there still remains a limit to which God will allow mankind to stretch out its hands towards the very things that God has told us we are not to do. God has always had a limit to sin. He reached that limit once before, and he has told us that he will once again reach that limit. And he refers specifically to when he will once again reach that limit. And in fact, Jesus himself, in the Olivet Discourse, uses this particular chapter as the background for when he will once again cease to strive with man. And he uses the conditions of the days of Noah as the backdrop for it. So this chapter is extremely important to those of you who care about such things as the last days. The prophetic word of God, and when it might be that we might be looking more closely for the glorious appearing of our great God and King. Because it is the times of Noah that provide the backdrop for that. He goes on. For he is indeed flesh, and yet his days shall be 120 years. Now remember, this was after a time when men had been living nearly a thousand years. Up to 963 years. And so God now is not only limiting the amount of time that man has, but he is also limiting the length of life to 120 years. 
And we still have people that get close to that. I think the current oldest person on the earth is slightly under 120. But he says, I won't strive with man forever. In other words, he he won't allow man to judge for himself. The word there, strive, is only found once in the entire Old Testament. It's a very unique Hebrew word, duo. And and what it essentially means is, is man and God at odds one with another and man choosing which direction he's going to go. In other words, it's the ultimate in choice where man chooses to do wrongly. God will not allow man indefinitely to choose wrongly is basically what he's saying here. Right now, you can choose wrongly if you want. But there's coming a time, and we know when that time is, again because our Bible tells us, that there's going to be the rule and reign of Christ back on this earth. And you will not be able to choose wrongly. In fact, you will be forced to choose righteously, even if you have a desire to choose wrongly. And then finally, at the end of that, Satan's thrown into the pit, and then the new heaven and new earth. But this is setting the stage. And then something seems almost insane. Looks like some kind of, you know, Grim fairy tale. Brothers Grimm wrote this. There were giants on the earth in those days. And then notice this, often skipped, and afterward. It wasn't just before the flood. There were some giants after the flood, and probably some of you can name at least one of them. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, Those are the mighty men who were of old and men of renown. That word giant is actually the Hebrew word Nephilim. You see what happens here in this particular passage, and it's the beginning of the end, if you will, and we'll get to the rest of it actually next week because we'll actually see why God chooses to take eight people, put them inside of the ark, and saves only them and destroys the rest of humankind. And I can tell you, there are an awful lot of conversations I've had with people, especially those who espouse atheism. This is one of the areas that they bring up. Well, why would God create mankind and then a few thousand years later completely wipe them off the face of the earth? That's the question. That question becomes, in technicolor, answered as we read the rest of chapter 6. Remember how sin began? Think about it for a second. Sin began very innocuously. It wasn't a major deal. I mean, let's be honest. How many of you in here, you do not have to raise your hand, but think about it for a second, have ever told a lie? Please don't raise your hands. Because if you don't all raise your hands, then you will have lied and you will become a liar right now. Probably everyone in here has told a lie at some point in time in their life. So Adam and Eve told a lie. How many of you have ever not trusted God? Please, again, don't raise your hands because we all know it's true. Probably every one of us have not trusted God at times. If you know God, there's a very good opportunity that you've not trusted Him. How many of you have ever gone against exactly what God told you to do? Again, please don't raise your hand. 
Now, I would think that most of you didn't begin your life and go, you know what, I'm going to set out to be the world's greatest sinner. You were born with the capacity to sin, and your lifestyle has proved beyond any shadow of a doubt that you are actually a sinner. You sin. You see, the way I know you're a sinner is you sin. You lie, you cheat, you deceive, you're selfish, you're bitter at times, unforgiving, you're unloving, you're unkind. Please don't get mad at me. I just described most of humankind, right? At times we all have those sin problems. And here's what happens when you begin to feed that side and there's no remedy to it. You can turn into something really evil. Let me give you a few names. Adolf Hitler, Pol Pot, Stalin, Marx, Mao Zedong. You, you see, when you start being really selfish and super self-centered and extraordinarily hateful, you begin to do some things that we would think tonight no one would ever think of. How else can you explain the slave trade that plagued this country except inherent evil? Right? Think about it. You see, mankind from time to time makes these runs towards evil. And we've gotten really close on several occasions. There's one yet left to come. And man's going to get all the way to this point once again. And God's going to say, enough. Now, I'm not telling you that's next week. But I can tell you where the world is heading. You look at where the world is going currently. We live in the most self-absorbed, narcissistic generation of people that has ever existed on the face of the earth. We are living currently in a post-Christian world, not just a post-Christian nation. The church is actually contracting. It's shrinking. There are places where the gospel is going out and people are being saved by the hundreds of thousands and millions but where the church was once strong, let me give you a few places. Great Britain. Used to be more than 90% Christian. It's less than 20% Christian. The United States of America used to be 78% Christian. It's less than 54% Christian tonight. And that's self-identification. People said, yes, I'm a believer. India, at one point in time, was almost 30% Christian. It's now less than 3% Christian. You see, the effects of sin, the effects of atheism, the effects of evolutionary thinking, the effects of us trying to outthink the need for God will once again bear down on the lives of humankind. And that's why this passage is so important. 
because it gives us a window into the thinking of God as to where that line is. How bad does it have to get before God says, enough? These things may seem strange. It's hard to imagine how evil the world must have been for God to send this incredible deluge that wipes out the earth. But I can tell you this, it really doesn't take a quantum leap in evil. It is very clear that all it takes is the church to begin to not trust God. The church to no longer have a witness in the world. The church to abandon the word of God. The church to stop the righteous ones, the ones like Noah, became fewer and farther between, and the descendants of Cain, as were in this story, began to set the tone for the way that everybody else was going to go. So when people ask me, well, why should we get involved you know, in the political process? And while I think you need to be very careful how you do that, we have an obligation to take our biblical worldview into the world. Because if we do not do that, then we hasten this type of behavior. It doesn't mean that we turn the church into a place of politics. It means that we take it from here out into the world and affect the culture that we live in. That's why pastors that will not teach the truth, I believe there's a special place of judgment for them. I think Scripture says that. The characteristics of those days are very present. And Jesus began to speak about it If you look at Matthew 24, go ahead and flip over there. All the way down to verse 37, and notice what it says. He's asked a question, Matthew 24, and verse 3, by the disciples. And that question is this, what shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That's at the beginning of Matthew chapter 24. Now this discourse, known as the Olivet Discourse, is Jesus' commentary on the very last days. Days that for us tonight are still yet ahead. They have not yet been fully realized, but they will come. So the disciples, believing that was going to be the following week, because the world was already in turmoil and trouble... Ask Jesus the question in verse 3. Notice verse 37. But as the days of Noah were. Now you know why I'm starting the way I'm starting? This was Jesus speaking about the days that we are reading about in Genesis 6. But as the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, when the world ends up in the same place that the world was when Noah was on the face of the earth, God said, and we've already read it, I will not strive with man forever. And so when we look at why he did it next week, you're going to understand very clearly exactly how close we might be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating... Drinking, marrying, and given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. In other words, they were clueless. 
They were going about their business like the world was going to last forever. They were doing the most normal and popular things that there were to do. They were hanging out, making families, having a nice meal together, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. People are going to be oblivious. They're going to be looking and watching, and they'll see what's going on, and they're going to say, ah, that's nothing. Homosexuality, just another lifestyle. Love is love. Anybody heard that slogan? Your Bible patently condemns that behavior. And while we must love people who are caught in that lifestyle, we have to also at the same time stand and say, not on my watch am I going to marry two people who are of the same gender. Because it's an abomination to God. And so as the world leans towards that direction, love is love. As the world leans towards, well, let's just make one of the drugs that we've been trying to eradicate since the 1940s legal, like we just did here in California, that, by the way, is still a federal class one drug, and if you happen to get caught with it by a federal agent, i.e. FBI, Border Patrol, you can still go to prison, just a little word up for you. So when the world is saying, well, it's just kind of, you know, it's not that bad. Jesus said, when the world begins to get that way, you better look up because your Redeemer draws nigh. We were talking back in the green room before the service tonight. And I'm sitting there thinking back of what it was like when I was a, a young person. Oh, men and women did not actually really kind of even kiss on television. They kind of got really close and it was like a... You never used any type of vulgarity. And vulgarity is words that kids use in common conversation today. Why am I telling you this? Because the book of Genesis is important. And this particular time is the reference point that Jesus uses for when he is going to take his church home. Jesus not only verified the historicity of the great flood, but he also reminds us we better be watching our our times. We better be watching our seasons. We better be looking up. Because just before he returns, it's going to look just like it did in Noah's day. Now, I admit to you, this is one strange passage. The moral, the spiritual conditions of that day and time, Cain's line had basically taken over. Now remember that from the innocuous beginning of not trusting God's word and lying and deceiving and trying to tell God, you know, I'm not actually naked. That's all it was. Think about it. They were fruit robbers, okay? That's how sin started. But it went from that to murder 
in one generation. One generation. Jealousy, one generation. Completely disobedient to God's absolute authority, one generation. That's why this is so important. You see, we think that we have forever. And I will tell you that very often when I talk, especially to young people, about some behavior that they're doing that Scripture is very clear on, I'm not talking about marginal things, well, you know, I'll just get it squared away right later. Right now, I'm, I'm having too much fun to stop doing that. You might want to remember what this passage says. You need to be strong with the truth of the Word of God because we don't know how long God is going to strive with us. Not corporately and not individually. That's why it's so important that believers do not get caught up in a life of sin. Once you know the grace of God, you're supposed to live as children of grace, which means your changed lives should be borne out in the way you live. You see, that's what happens when you're really a child of God. So when you do what I was speaking of this morning, and you believe on His name, things do begin to change. And you have a heart that leans towards God. That is what we saw in Noah. But if there's no change, then you saw what happened in the line of Cain. That's like, God who? God what? I don't need to answer to him. Who is he anyway in my life? You see, the sons of God saw the daughters of men and took them as their wives, and the unions, the sexual relationship between those two groups of people became the giants that were on the earth. And people say, well, there's no such thing as giants. Well, you need to be careful. Because giants in this case is not like Jack and the giant slayer. I'm not talking about 85 foot tall beings. We're talking about giants meaning it was so believed by the translators of the Septuagint uh, in, in the early first century in Alexandria, Egypt, that they actually substituted the Greek word gigantes, or giants. They were just very large people. And so what we have here is a picture of these fallen ones, the Nephilim, giants, and there's really only a couple of ways that you can look at this. It's either fairy tales and ogres and dragons and myths. And, you know, it's, it's like when you read Greek mythology, it's full of all kinds of nefarious things. You have the gods of Mount Olympus coming and, you know, having their way with the human women on below them and under their control. It's, it's exactly like this. And so there is some thought that people would look at this and go, well, this is just, you know, God's idea of a fairy tale. And the other way is, is that people would look at it and say, well, you can simply explain it, make it intellectually palatable, and we'll just say, well, this is just like the difference between believers and unbelievers. It's just kind of a word picture. Or is it, you know, royalty marrying into the commoners? What is it? 
this whole passage hangs on exactly one Hebrew phrase, two words. And it is B'nai Elohim. Who are they? Are they ever mentioned after this? Is there any way to understand what was being said? And the fact of the matter is, there is a way to understand. The actual phrase is used three other times. They're all in the book of Job, and they all pertain to angels. They're angelic beings. They are literally the sons of God, as in birthed in heaven by God. Just as mankind was put on the face of the earth, we know that God also at the same time, someplace consistent with the beginning of the universe, God created angelic beings. And it is the B'nai Elohim, those angelic hosts, which we know according to the book of Revelation, that there are demonic hosts just as there are heavenly hosts. This is a very strange case, referring to angels. Very similar form, the word bar Elohim, the two words together, used there in Daniel chapter 3, also refers to an angel or to a theophany. In other words, it's a heavenly host. The third place, B'nai Elim, is used in Psalm 29, also in Psalm 89, again, refers to angels. So this is literally angelic beings seeking out the daughters of men, human women, and having sex with them. And from them, pure unadulterated evil, because these are fallen angels. Now people are going, oh, that sounds like some horror movie. Yes, it does. And you might wonder where mankind got the idea to think up some, something like that. It's because it's not actually something that has never happened before. And it's described here in the book of Genesis. And so when you think about this demonic host of fallen angels, there seems no reasonable doubt as far as the languages here that God was trying to convey to us that these fallen angels who were in opposition to God's will, undoubtedly stimulated by Satan, remember he's known since the beginning that he was in trouble, and if you knew that there was going to be a child born who was going to be Messiah, what would be the easiest way for you to make sure that that child never sees the light of day? Send your own hosts into the world to populate the gene pool with evil. And that's exactly what Satan does. This, in essence, is Satan's influence. Compounding the original sin. Remember, man given the choice to be able to choose to love God or not love God, that's a beautiful part of who he has made us so that we can love him fully. We have to be able to choose to not love him. These angels did exactly what the book of Jude reminds us, tells us, make sure that we understand very com completely. Turn there, if you would, book of Jude. So go to the book of Revelation, right before the book of Revelations, the book of Jude. The book of Jude is exactly one chapter, it's 25 verses. If you look at verse 6, again, this is a, the New Testament, this is not the Old Testament, verse 6. 
Actually, we'll look at verse 5. But I want to remind you, verse 5, the book of Jude, though you once knew this, you were aware of it, you understood it, how do you think that is? By reading the book of Genesis. By understanding what God had already said. Peter says much the same thing, and we'll look at that in just a moment as well. Oh, you once knew that the Lord, having saved people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And so God has constantly been telling people, look, I want you to believe in me. And you have a choice to do that freely, but I'm not going to allow your evil to continue forever, to, to continue on. The same reason that the Egyptians were wiped out. You, you can say, well, why would God do that? There were probably a couple of good Egyptians in there. Don't you think that God is quite able to convince the minds of a righteous Egyptian to not follow after the crowd? I believe he is. The way he's able to pick out somebody who's in a tribal situation in the middle of Afghanistan. And by the way, I know a soldier who actually met a Christian man in the caves of Tora Bora in Afghanistan who had been living there his whole life who was led to the Lord by a missionary, and he chose to live in the caves of Afghanistan. No reason for a missionary to go in. You're taking your life into your hands. And yet there was one righteous man. Notice how this continues. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, where was their proper domain? Have then the heavenlies, not the earth. God sends angels frequently to the earth. And when they appear, they appear in the form of men, so far as Scripture says. They didn't keep that proper domain, but left their own abode. Those he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. They have a special place in hell is another way to look at it. As Sodom and Gomorrah. And the cities around them, in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example of suffering and vengeance and eternal fire. These are not happy thoughts. You are never seeing a Disney movie based on this passage. And the reason I'm saying that, it's still true. You see, sometimes we don't like to hear the truth. Jude believed that there were naughty angels. Jude believed that angels left their proper abode and had sexual relations with humans. The book of Genesis declares that truth. Turn over to Second Peter. All you got to do is go back a few pages. Second Peter chapter two, pick up in verse four. Here it is: For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down into hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people preacher of righteousness 
bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. God has his limits. And he doesn't play around forever. He, he isn't going to strive with man forever. He's not going to continue to just turn a, uh, an eye of grace as he's doing right now. He will reach a point at some point in time and say, enough. And it's interesting that the keystone in both Jude and in Peter's account of this was the rise of homosexuality. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And for anybody who believes the nonsense that they were just being inhospitable, as liberal theologians try and make it out to be, they have zero understanding of what the Bible actually teaches. Because it's very clear, because the context of what happens here is sexual, the context of what Peter comments on it is sexual, and what the context of Jude is, is sexual, and in fact, the actual passage itself was sexual sin between angels, because remember, the men of Sodom sought to have sex with the angels, who were also men. Very clear. That is the influence of Satan. That strange flesh that other, if you will, lifestyle. It's never been okay with God. And I say that in absolute love. It's not okay with God. Whether it's okay with me or you or our country or this world does not make a bit of difference. It matters that God's not okay with it. And if he said he's not okay with it, it's one of the reasons that he destroyed the world. Don't think he's going to give it a pass this time. And while I'm not making a direct equivocation here and saying that I know for a fact, I heard from God, that he's going to destroy the world because of what's going on uh, with the gay rights movement right now, I can absolutely tell you that it is going to be a component part of the very last days because your Bible says so. And your Bible is where we get our truth. I don't get my Bible from a politician. I give my Bible to the politicians. I tell them the truth of what it says. I don't let them indoctrinate me with their supposed truth to try and change the truth of what God's Word says. That's going to make me really unpopular. But I'd rather be unpopular and tell the truth than tell a lie and see someone perish because I did not tell them the truth. So when this goes up on the Internet and I start getting the emails... I just want you to know, God loves homosexuals. He always has. He just simply asks that they repent. Just like he loves drug addicts, but he wants them to repent. 
just like he loves adulterers and adulteresses, but he wants them to repent. That was what was asked of them. Turn from your wickedness. And we do not get to tell God what he thinks is and is not wicked. He tells us what that is. And he knows better. So please be strong in these areas in this day and time. We don't have much time left. Do not compromise your witness by saying yes to that which God has clearly said no to. Please don't do it. Because if people cannot believe and trust that you are telling them the truth in all things regarding life and godliness as you know it from the Word, then why would they believe that there is a God who loves them? Preach the truth, family. Because Satan has influenced this world in a massive way to the point of confusion. People are legitimately confused now as to what truth is. As Josh said, and I, I was sitting there thinking about it. I don't know why I've never really put those things together. We actually now live in the first generation in almost 2,000 years where the word truth itself is actually contested. People are like, well, what's truth? Truth is now what you say it is instead of what God says it is to most people. They don't know the Lord almost to all people who don't know the Lord. God's word's very clear. So do we trust it? Do we believe it? Remember where I started tonight. You have a choice. You can either trust it, believe it, and do what it says, or you can start to pick it apart and say, well, you know, I don't know if it really means that. Then you don't know if it really means that for by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourself, it's the gift of God. So please don't play, I like this passage, but I don't like that passage. You need to like the whole Bible. If it were on Facebook, like it on Facebook. Hit the, love, the like button on Instagram for Jesus. Because everything else is spiritism. Everything else is witchcraft. Everything else is occult beliefs and practice. Everything else is patently satanic. And people say, well, you know, I don't go to the first church of Satan. When you agree with the devil, you might as well be going to the church of Satan. Now, we can sanitize it all we want. We can sit here tonight, we can talk about, well, you know, I, you know, I've never sacrificed anyone. And that likely is true. But remember how this started. No, we didn't eat of the fruit. It was the woman you gave me. Satan deceived me. That's how it started. It went from there to murder and from murder to the flood. And after the flood, giants were in the land again. Notice it says, and afterwards. And we're going to pick up that thought. That's why God's patience has its limits. He knows when mankind's gone over the line. He knows when you've gone over the line. And I I want to say something to you. It's it's not going to make some of you happy. I know beyond any shadow of doubt that God has taken people home to spare other people. There have been situations, and I, I will spare you the details because they're gruesome. But I have 
sat in counseling with couples and had husbands look me in the eye and say, I know exactly what the Bible says about marriage and tell me you don't have to live with her. And I will say, that doesn't change what God's Word says. And this one man in particular that I'm talking about was dead two weeks later in a head-on car crash. Because he was going to destroy his wife, and he was going to destroy his kids, and his family, and their families. And God just said, I'm not letting it happen. And I believe God took him. God has his limits. Do not play with sin. And do not think that you're the exempt one because you're not the exempt one. If you think you are, you're on a one-way path and it's not a good one. This is powerful stuff. My spirit shall not always strive with man. That's why I had you underline it. It's true for all of us as humankind, and it's true for us as individuals. He will not always strive with us. When he uses that Hebrew word, du'un or du'o, it means to judge one thing against another thing. It means that you give your opinion and God gives his and he lets you do that. Do you know God lets you question him? He does that. He lets you have your opinion. And that's exactly what's in view in this verse. You can have your opinion. But at the end of the day, the weight of the evidence that's for him and against us is so overwhelming, we're supposed to go, God, you're right. I'm going to change the way I think. And if you ever get to the place to where you will look God in the eye and say, I'm not going to change. I'm going to continue in this pattern of sin. I'm going to do this thing. I don't care whether your word says that I'm not supposed to do it or not. I do not believe that that is truth. Then you have placed yourself in exactly the place that's being talked about here. God will not strive forever. And he will then turn you over for the destruction of your flesh. Don't do that. And again, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I guarantee you sitting in this room are people that can tell you personally, yes and amen, I've been down that road, I tested God's patience, and I paid the price for it. One of them is standing right here. I've tested God's patience. Wandered in the wilderness, paid a price for it. It was not good. It was a long time ago. But I still remember what it's like to have God go, no, Jeff, you're not winning. And oh, by, by the way, those teeth on the ground, those are yours. Because when God wants to get you, your attention, he brings out the holy two-by-four, and he's not opposed to whacking you with it. <laughs> if you can collect those, go see the dentist. You see, God is then going to put into play a reminder. You see, bigger's not necessarily better. There were giants on the earth in those days. Let's wrap this up. 
when the sons of God came to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. And it's interesting when you, when you look at this, it, it, it isn't the, the, the modern understanding that they took wives. They literally took the women. This is kind of like angelic rape is what it is. But they were so powerful, they actually convinced the women that this is the right thing to do. This is demonic at, at, at the core. And just like we know that there are huge, were huge reptiles on this earth, and you can think of mammoths and cave bears and giant cockroaches and dragonflies and every kind of dinosaur that you can think of. There were giant people too. And I want to remind you that we have zero fossil evidence of almost all humankind from that period of time. And we probably have zero evidence of all humankind from that time because it was destroyed and buried underneath thousands of feet of silt after the flood. So I wouldn't be digging around expecting that you're going to find the skeleton of a Nephilim anytime. At least not next week. Maybe that someday the Lord allows it. We have found some fairly giant skeletons, though. Interesting, I was looking at some old faked National Geographic articles to where people supposedly, and they actually inserted the National Geographic logo and all those kind of things. I'm going, that's just, it's like the dude's head was like 12 feet in diameter. It's like ridiculous. But that isn't what they were saying. They were just saying that they were very large people. They were, they were mutations. They were giants. There are currently two people on the face of the earth that are in excess of eight feet, one of them nearly nine feet tall today. So it's not like that's unheard of. And we're actually going to find out that at least some of these guys were the six-fingered man that fought Indigo Montoya and Princess Bride. But they're just simply large people. But they were fierce warriors. They were very, very, very dangerous. And they were always a threat to the Jewish people. How do we know that? Because again, the others that were afterward were actually also told about in Scripture. The book of Numbers tells us the after that, the Philistines of Gath. Of course, Goliath Goliath is the chief one among those. The spear the size of a weaver's beam. Sword taller than David himself. We don't know how tall David was, but that's a big sword. Even if he was five foot tall, that's still a big sword. We have the Anakim, race of giants, descended from the sons of Anak, lived in the southern part of the land of Canaan. Modern day Gaza Strip, by the way. Philistia, land of the Philistines. Yet another part that lived in the, the southern end of what is modern-day Israel, which would be in Jordan today, the land of Moab and Edom. We'll see that when we get to Genesis 23, and it's the very same people that are mentioned there in Joshua chapter 15. And of course, Goliath himself, also a descendant of the Anakim. So it's not a wise thing to say that you don't believe 
what God has clearly said and repeated over and over and over again in his word. Not just in an obscure passage in Genesis chapter 6, but he uses the same word for giants, the same B'nai Elohim for those angels, the sons of God. He uses the same understanding of these mighty men of renown who, interestingly enough, always hated God's chosen people. Why do you think that would be? Because they weren't supposed to be on this earth to begin with. It wasn't God's doing. When you talk about how these things could possibly happen, people always debate this. There are actually only two ways that you can have genetic differentiation. When you're talking about basic genetics is this. Mutations and recombinations of DNA. In other words, you take DNA, mix it together, and it makes something new. Or there's a mutation. We don't know if that's what happened here, but it makes perfect sense that if that is what happens, that's why you would still have races of giants. That's why after the flood, there's still this possibility because once again, Satan invades uh, our time domain uh, with his minions and again, these incredible giants come on the scene. There are some future implications. And don't forget that part of it because it's perhaps the most important part of it. That when things start to get really, really, really crazy, when, when people start talking about giants once again, you know, it's interesting when you start to read some of these crazy things. I don't know how many of you have ever seen the movie Men in Black, but there's a scene in there. And I actually like the movie. I'm just telling you. It's okay. You can judge me if you want. But if you remember that movie, there's a scene in the movie where they're going to a newsstand and they grab the National Enquirer. And that was the source of truth. There are a lot of people picking up the National Enquirer as if it's a source of truth. There are a lot of people wandering around going, well, you know, it could be aliens. I might have been abducted. So don't be surprised if sometime in the future there might be yet another time when after these times, once again, there were some ultra-large beings on the face of the earth. As we're going to see next time, as it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be when the Son of Man comes. Amen? Except the next time, they're going to have a world leader. His name's going to be the Antichrist. The next time, they're going to gather together for the purpose of trying to bring about an overthrow of God's kingdom. And it's not going to work. Because the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is going to come and put it down himself. Amen? Let's pray. I'm going to bring the worship team back up and we'll close in song. Some pastors are going to come forward, be available for prayer. You know, maybe, maybe you've got something going on in your life and you, you just expect God to continue to strive. And maybe you're concerned that 
that thing that's going on in your life needs to just be turned over to the Lord. Tonight's a good night to do that. Let God have it. Just give it up. It's not worth keeping, I can tell you that. And it surely isn't worth what's awaiting if you continue to go down that road because there is going to be a point in time where either you personally or us corporately, the Lord's just going to say, no, you've gone over. So instead of going over, why don't you just give it over and do it tonight. Amen? Father, thank you. Thank you for the power of your word. And Lord, we just ask that you would take from us anything that hinders our walk with you. Lord, let us never be rebellious. Never think that that we're the one that's going to escape uh, your watchful eye. Lord, those things in our lives which you know oh so well. Lord, we're not fooling you. We might be fooling other people, but we're not fooling you. And so God, we realize that there's coming a day and time when as it was in the days of Noah, the times of Noah, that time when you finally said enough, those days are coming again. And so Lord, help us to be ready. Help us to be people of truth. Lord, help us to speak that truth in love, of course, always. But let us not waver on the truth. Let us be strong in the truth. Let us be like Noah was, willing to stand for 120 years and build an ark, even when no one had seen rain. Lord, let us proclaim you, even if no one believes. Lord, let us live our lives in reckless abandon, hopeful for the future, because we know who holds it, the people of truth. We bless you, we praise you, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.